Okay, we are live. Welcome everyone for the final session of Covenant, uh, Covenantal Commandment, uh, where we are looking at Shemitah in the Torah. Um, if you are joining us here on Zoom, we as always encourage you, if you're willing, to turn your video on so we can look around and see each other's faces. It feels a little more personable, a little more warm. And if you would like to contribute, ask a question, make a comment, you are welcome to do so. When Rabbi Silver invites that, you can either unmute or you're always free to use the chat here on Zoom. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, feel free to put questions and comments right below this video. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hi, really glad that you're learning with us. Um, so of course we will be using text from the Tanakh. So if you have a beloved Tanakh that you prefer, that you're very speedy with, you can get around in, um, or a Hamish, whichever, whichever you like, you can have that, but we will have text on the screen for your convenience. And without further ado, Rabbi Silver. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's, just for a moment, uh, just review a couple of points that we made in the previous sessions. Um, one of the basic points is that the Shemitah, which appears uh, twice in the book of Shemot, and appears actually mentioned twice in the book of Devarim, but the heart and soul of the Shemitah passages is chapter 25 of Vayikra. And the, the point is that Chapter 25 of Ayikra precedes chapter 26 of Ayikra. Chapter 26 of Ayikra, we have a what's called the Tochacha, the admonition, the blessing of the curse. If you obey, keep the Torah, there's a certain blessing that the Torah describes in chapter 26. And if you fail to do so, in the words of the Torah, violate the covenant. Uh, there are dire punishments, primarily exile. Torah speaks of exile from the land. It also speaks of a return, but it speaks of exile. And what's striking about that chapter is that the only mitzvah that the Torah singles out, the violation of which results in exile, is the failure to observe the Shemitah year. So chapter 26 is directly related to uh, chapter 25, which speaks of Shemitah extensively. It's not that Shemitah is the only mitzvah, not that at all, but that Shemitah has been chosen to represent all the mitzvot. And the point of that is that the context of 25 and 26, as the Torah says explicitly in chapter 26, is that there's a covenant. Covenant means a two-sided uh, agreement, a two-sided relationship, the violation of which results in all kinds of bad consequences. And this covenant, as the Ramban explains, and we embellished a bit, is the covenant of Sinai. The, the giving of the Torah at Sinai in the book of Shemot is called the covenant. The tablets are called Shnei Chotabrit, the tablets of the covenant. So what's striking is that Shemitah has been chosen as what might call the covenantal mitzvah, to represent all the mitzvot. And why was Shemitah chosen to represent all the mitzvot? Well, for starters, Shemitah is essentially Shabbat. That's how the Torah describes it in chapter 25, Shabbat Aretz, Shabbat Rashem. So the Torah calls Shemitah a Sabbath unto God, Shabbat Rashem. And in reading the book of Exodus, the book of Shemot, we took note of the fact that the one mitzvah that the Torah singles out in, in the book of Shemot is the mitzvah of Shabbat. It appears in many places. It appears in the context of Paul saying there's no Shabbat. You would, you would want to take the slaves out to serve God. No, there's no Shabbat. And it appears in the context of the mon. You collect the mon six days a week, but the seventh is Shabbat. Okay, you can't go out and collect on the seventh day. You must prepare on the sixth. Then it appeared twice in conjunction with building the Mishkan. Both of the instructions at the end of chapter, in chapter 31 and preliminary to building the Mishkan in chapter 35. And on top of all that, it appears significantly in the Ten Commandments, in the Sarita de Rote, it's the fourth commandment, and it's the commandment that has takes up the most space 
So in short, what the Torah has done is take the Shabbat, that it is the central mitzvah of the book of Shemot, and here it presents us with a variant on Shabbat, which is Shabbat Aretz. So this mitzvah has been singled out as the covenantal mitzvah to represent all the mitzvot. If one asks the question, okay, but what does that signify that Shemitah represents all the mitzvot? So I would say that you have to look at Shemitah, what are the salient features of Shemitah? One of them is the idea of dependency on God, because you're talking about not working the land, not just the day, but not working the land for the entire year. And this idea of not working the land for the entire year, the Torah itself recognizes is very difficult. Because the Torah says that people will say, how can we do this? How can we not work the land for the entire year? We can't gather. This is found in chapter 25, verse number 20. How can we do this? It's not a mitzvah that's impossible to keep this mitzvah. So the Torah's answer, which is found in the next verse, Verse number 21 is No, says God, I will command my blessing to you. You get a blessing. Um, the sixth year crop will be sufficient for three years. Here, by the way, there's a dispute between the biblical commentaries, uh, Rashi and the Ramban. What does it mean to say, I will ordain my blessing for three years? Why do you need three years? So one point, one view is that one view is that when the crops of the seventh year, you're forbidden to work the field in the seventh year, but you're also not going to work the crops even a little bit prior to the seventh year in the sixth year, because in the in the in the Mishnah and the Gemara. They talk about not only not working the crops during the seventh year, but not even working the fields a bit prior to the seventh year. There's certain things that are prohibited even before the seventh year. And then if you don't work in the seventh year, uh, you, don't, you have no food for the eighth year either because if you, you haven't worked in the seventh year. So part of the eighth year, you don't have sufficient food. So the blessing of three years, so this is Rashi's position, is for part of the sixth, the seventh, and part of the eighth. That's one, that's one view, three years. Then there's another view. Um, there's another view, and that is that it's talking about three years is a, is a case which occurs rarely, but can occur. And three years, the problem, the reason for three years, this is what the Ramban thinks is the simple reading of the Torah, is not for the normal case of Shemitah, but rather in a situation where Shemitah is followed by an additional year of Shemitah, two consecutive years of not working the land. How is that possible? Well, it is possible because in this chapter, the Torah speaks not only of Shemitah, which is one once every seventh year, but after a cycle of seven times seven, 49 years, the 50th year, is called the Yovel, the Jubilee year. And during the Jubilee year, during the Yovel, you are also not permitted to, uh, to work the fields. So every 50 years or once in 50 years, you'll be in a situation where you have two consecutive years of not working the field. One can only wonder if we ask the question, how can we do this mitzvah, it's too difficult. But once every 50 years, it's going to be super difficult because you have two consecutive years where you can't work the field. So the Ramban and others think that's why the Torah says three years, because the Torah is covering not only the Shemitah situation, which is not working the field for one year, but even the case where it's followed by the Yovel, which would be two consecutive years of not working the fields. So the Torah says, don't worry, I will then my blessing, and even during the eighth year, you'll still be eating from the sixth until the ninth year, until the crops come in. So that's actually 
an interesting point that this is a mitzvah that the Torah says we know it's difficult to keep, which is very unusual. But what makes it even more striking is that in the book of Devarim that we'll get to shortly, where the Torah speaks of Shemitah in a completely different way, it doesn't mention the land at all. It mentions the remission of, of, of debt. And there, the Torah says that every seven years, every Shemitah year, uh, the debts, if not paid back, are, are actually remitted. And the Torah there says in chapter 15 of Dvarim that Torah says, let not the following thought enter your mind that if someone asks me for a loan and it's, let's say, the fifth year of the Shemitah cycle or the sixth year of the Shemitah cycle, and, I'll, and you'll say, how can I give this person a loan? Since at the end of the seventh year, the debt is remitted, I'm going to lose my money. So the Torah says, don't say that. I know you're going to say that, but don't worry about it. I'm going to send you a blessing. Let's just find that verse for a moment. That's in chapter 15 of Tvarim. Chapter 15 of Tvarim, which begins with the words, Miketz Sheva Shanim, Tase Shemitah. Shemitah means to, um, to release. Every seventh year, which the, which the commentaries understand to mean Shemitah, the actual year of Shemitah of the land. It doesn't say that yet, but that's the understanding. Every Shemitah, every seventh year of the so-called Shemitah cycle, they take it to mean the end of the end of the seventh year. There's a remission of debt. And then the Torah says, um, let's find that verse. Verse number. Verse number nine. Kishamalucha, be very careful. The seventh year is coming. The year of remission is coming. And your eye will be, you, 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 your eye will be, uh, you are mean to your needy kinsman, evil eye, mean to your kinsman, to your fellow, fellow Jew in this case, and you, won't, and you won't lend the money. If that happens, this uh, person, this, this person will cry out to God and you will incur guilt. So the Torah says, give, give the money, lend the money. Have no regrets. Why not? Don't worry. In return for this, God will bless you in all your efforts and your undertaking to have a bracha. So we notice the striking parallel between the verse in Vayikra, which talks about Shemitah of the land, and the verse in Devarim, which speaks of Shemitah in terms of remission of debt. Does not mention the land at all. So it's a mitzvah, Shemitah, which not once but twice in completely different contexts makes exactly the same point that it's a mitzvah that's difficult to observe because you don't, you may possibly lose your money. Don't worry, says the Torah. Lend the money, and if the debt is in fact remitted, God will bless you. The same thing the Torah says in Vayikra. How, how can we not work for a whole year? The field, you don't work, you're forbidden to work the field. Don't worry about it. I'll command my blessing to you. This is extremely unusual, and it appears twice in two different contexts. It means that the Torah understands that Shemitah is a very, very difficult mitzvah to keep. So I wanted to say something about that. Um, it's a difficult mitzvah to keep. And I think this speaks to the the covenant because when we talk about the covenant and the torah has more than one covenant but the first time we encounter the covenant is in the book of Breshit in chapter 15 that's the covenant that god makes with abraham's descendants concerning the land concerning the land of the land of israel and 
God appears to Abraham in chapter 15, who at that point does not have any heirs. And God promises Abraham that he will, he will have heirs and that these heirs will possess this land. At which point in the Torah, in, in Breshit chapter 15, Abraham asks God, Hashem Elohim, through what or with what? Not, not, not how do I know, but with, with what shall I know? In other words, what Avram is asking God in those passages is, what is the commitment? You made this promise of this chosen land, this special place where God is present, kind of alternative to the Garden of Eden, the purpose of your creation, the sacred space, what a, what a blessing, ultimate blessing, connection to the, to the infinite God. But through what shall we possess this? And God's answer is, I say to you, know very well. And there the conditions of the covenant are spelled out. And as those who have studied, at least with me, many times we've encountered this, your descendants will be strangers, your descendants will be enslaved, your descendants will be abused, Inui. And the Torah then continues and says, and this will take place over three generations, but the fourth generation shall return to the land. So the conditions of the covenant are the initial suffering of three generations, who in fact do not possess the land. The three generations of suffering are set up, setting up the possibility that the fourth generation will possess the land. Three generations of suffering, those that oppress them, those that enslave them will be punished. They'll leave with the wells, but they don't possess the land. The Torah says, two verses later, but the fourth generation there in verse number 16 shall possess the land. You have to wait till the sin of the Amori is complete. These are the terms of the covenant. And the point that has to be emphasized here is that given this option of this covenant, most people I think would say, it's a beautiful concept. Uh, I'm not so interested in this covenant because it means terrible suffering. And the only benefit is that at some point in time we'll be freed from slavery. Those who oppress us will be punished, but you don't return to the land. Only the fourth generation returns to the land. The point is that though elsewhere it makes statements about, you know, connecting to God is not impossible. It's a little But in point of fact, this covenant is pretty stark. It's pretty demanding. In the book of Breshit, the one who actually enters into this covenant and willingly does so is actually Yaakov. When he goes down to Egypt towards the end of his life, and he knows that what awaits him in Egypt is precisely the experience that he had in the house of Laban. And yet he goes down. When God says, Yaakov, Yaakov, he says, Hineni. So, okay. He's the hero of, he's the covenantal hero of Genesis. But when Pharaoh asks Yaakov, how old are you? Yaakov's answer is famously, not as old as you think. I'm not as old as you think. I've had, I've had a ma'at v'ra'im ha'yu chayai. My years are few and bad. And Yaakov's life is a life of suffering. So my point is, to be covenantal means willing to pay a price, and a heavy price, for entering into this relationship. So it's not that surprising if we understand covenant in these terms, that it imposes upon us all kinds of limitations, and it can be a heavy burden to bear. We can understand very well why the Torah has singled out as the covenantal mitzvah in the book of Vayikra, the Shemitah year. And the Torah itself is aware of that. And the Torah says, we know it's difficult. It's not impossible. And if you have the trust, which is what Shemitah has to be about at the end of the day, because you have to believe in the blessing, there will be a blessing. But, you know, there are never guarantees. I mean, it's God's guarantee in this case. But, you know, 
we could easily see why people would have questions about that. And this is the covenantal mitzvah. So uh, I don't think we should disconnect the covenantal mitzvah of Ayikra. Uh, the imposition of all kinds of limitations, uh, all kinds of stipulations and you know, this is this is what it is. This is it's not necessarily easy to to observe this. Nor did the Torah ever intend it to be easy. It doesn't make our life easy. It may make our life sanctified and meaningful, but there's not a guarantee in the Chumash, as far as I can tell, that it's going to be easy. Quite quite the opposite. And uh, I would add to this something else about covenantal mitzvah. I just noticed couple of days ago. And this is the following point. And then after this, I'll stop and take comments or questions. In the book of Devarim, which is chapter 15, another remarkable feature of Shemitah, and you have it in two different places with two completely different meanings. There's probably a connection between the two, certainly, but they're very different. So chapter 15 spoke about the remission of debt. And here too, at the end of the Shemitah year, right? And end of the seven years, which the tradition understands to mean the Shemitah year. Shemitah, not just seven years, because the slave also goes free after six years. But that's nothing to do with Shemitah. The slave does not go free during the Shemitah year. The Hebrew slave, the slave goes free after six years. In the seventh year, the slave is free. That's not related to the Shemitah cycle. But over here, the understanding is that this is related to the Shemitah cycle. So the Torah says, you know, you should lend the money. And the Torah says, Let, don't have the following thought. Don't think that the seventh year is coming. Uh, Shemitah is around the corner. And you have the stingy stinginess or you look, look poorly upon the, the poor person and you won't give the person the money. You won't lend the money. The person will call out to you. That's the language of the Chumash. And this verse, this phrase, um, has a, refers uh, back to the beginning of chapter 15. The Torah says, uh, this is the matter of the Shemitah in chapter 15, verse number two. Every creditor should remit the due that he claims from his fellow. So if I lend money, I have to be willing to, 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 to remit the debt in the Shemitah year, at the end of the Shemitah year. You shouldn't have done should impress upon your fellow. It's an interesting term. Can't get into that now. But he goes to your brother. Book of Devarim often speaks about brother, fellow Jewish brother. Because Shemitah, Karash Hashem. Shemitah is proclaimed of God. So Shemitah in chapter 15 is Karah Shemitah Hashem. That's the phrase. And then later it says, don't think, don't not lend somebody because Shemitah is coming. Because if you do that, the Karah Alecha Hashem, the person will cry out to God. So I was thinking about this interesting phrase. That if, you, if you do not stop lending the money, because if the person cries out, if you do this, the person, and who is the person? A poor person. Evyon is a poor person. The lending of money in the Torah is a form of charity. In fact, the Torah never speaks about simply giving somebody money. Don't have that. There's only one situation where the Torah talks about giving money, giving a gift. And that is in terms of building the Mishkan. There you have it that there both is a half shekel that everybody's supposed to give, almost everybody. And then there's uh, the voluntary contributions that built the Mishkan, called the So there it speaks about contributing, giving a contribution. 
But elsewhere, it doesn't talk about giving a poor person money. It talks about lending a person money. So lending the poor person money is a form of charity. Of course, we remember at a very important point that in the Torah, we are forbidden to take interest from the poor, from the fellow Jew. So there's no, it's not like today lending money. Lending money today is not lending to poor people. People, everybody's borrowing money. Borrow, buy a car. Typically, if you don't pay for the car, take out a loan or a house or whatever. And in businesses, it's the wealthy that borrow. I mean, you have to prove to the bank that you have money to get a loan. You know, they, it's quite the opposite. But that's not true in the Chumash. And there's, there's no interest. So there's no benefit. So it's a, it's a form of charity. And it's it maybe the highest form of charity. You give the person the wherewithal to get up on their own two feet and to and to move forward. But sometimes the person won't be able to pay back. So the Torah says, don't press this person. If you do that, so I had the following thought about this verse. Just yesterday I was thinking about this. But actually, we have a similar phrase elsewhere in the Torah. And the place we have it is the following. Very strikingly. You know, in the Chumash, we have the, the revelation at Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments as chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. And at the end of that chapter, the people turn to Moshe and say, we're frightened to hear God's voice. So we don't want to hear God's voice anymore. You should speak to us. So Moshe agrees, God agrees, Moshe agrees. And Moshe goes up the mountain to receive more commandments. And these more commandments are found in the end of chapter 20. And then chapter 21, Viego Hamishpatim, and chapter 22 and chapter 23. So we have a whole set of commandments. This set of commandments, Moshe comes down the mountain in chapter 24 of Exodus, and Moshe says to the people, this is what God has taught me. He writes these commandments down in Exodus chapter 24. We just find that verse for you in Exodus chapter 24. And it comes down the mountain. Um, let's find the verse. Verse number four. First, he tells the people what, informs the people what God has taught him. All of the various laws and rules at the end of 20 and the previous chapters. And then it says he writes them down. Moshe Hashem. Moshe writes down all of the mountain, all of the, all of the rules, all the laws. He writes them down. And then he brings the sacrifice. Um, uh, he takes the blood of the sacrifice. He puts it into uh, pans. And then, verse number seven, Vayikach Sefer Habrit, Vayikra He took the book of the covenant. What is the book of the covenant? Sefer Habrit. And they translate record of the covenant. Sefer is a book, a written document. The document of the covenant. What is the document of the covenant? The document of the covenant are all those laws that Moshe got on the mountain that the people did not hear. He's reading them all of these laws because only Moshe was taught this. The Ten Commandments, everybody heard. But the Book of the Covenant, these laws that Moshe writes down, first he tells the people about the laws, and then he reads it to them out of a book. And the book is called the Book of the Covenant. And when the people hear the Book of the Covenant, they say famously, Naseh Benishma. We will do it. Whatever Naseh Benishma means, leave that aside. But it's an acceptance, a full acceptance. It probably means Naseh will do it, Benishma, and we're willing to hear more. That's one way to read it. What, what you told us we'll do, and we, and we understand it's going to be more. So we'll do that as well. When we hear that, we'll, we'll fulfill that as well. That's one possibility. But the point is that the Torah called these laws the Book of the Covenant. And it follows upon the Ten Commandments, which are written down on the tablets of the covenants, Luchot So now, 
we can't get fully into this now at all, but when you have a whole bunch of laws, the end of chapter 20, and 21, and 22, and 23, what's always interesting to see is what is highlighted among, is there something highlighted amongst these laws? And what I've argued for in the past is that yes, when you read the book of the covenants, three things jump out at you. Here's what jumps, jumps out. First, the first thing that jumps out at you is that the Elah Mishpatim Nehem, which is the beginning of 21, that the Torah in chapter 21 starts with the Elah Mishpatim, the Mishpat, which the Torah spends the most time on in the book of the covenant by far the most time, is the law of slavery. The male and, and female Hebrew slaves it begins in, right away in the second verse and it goes all the way down, verse number two, verse number three, verse number four. You scroll down, you'll see verse number four and there's verse number five and there's verse number six um, and there's verse number seven, the female slave and there's verse number eight and there's verse number nine um, and 10 as well. Um, and then finally, verse number 11. By far in a way, the most space in the Book of the Covenant is about the Hebrew slave. And here too, the Torah limits slavery to six years, maximally six years for the man and maybe even less for the woman. That's not our topic now. But slavery is highlighted right at the beginning and is the main, the main mitzvah. And not surprising, it's in the Book of Exodus. They have just been freed as slaves. So the Torah speaks about slavery. That's one highlight of the Book of the Covenant. Another highlight of the Book of the Covenant is that on two different places, it's repeated, in two different places, the Torah mentions not to oppress the gear, not to oppress the stranger. It's mentioned twice. Now in a, in a, in a, in a law book, that's very striking. Why would you mention the same mitzvah twice? And two different reasons are given for non-oppression of the of the care. One is um, you were because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That appears later. And the second is, do not oppress the stranger, and you know how the stranger feels because you were strangers. You were gerim the Eretz Mitzrayim. So that's a highlight because it's repeated, and that's the only mitzvah that's actually repeated in the Book of the Covenant. And then there's another verse that I was thinking about in reading the Shemitah. Let me see if I can find that verse very quickly. Um, yes. This is found in chapter 22. It's even more striking than I realized, actually. Let's begin in verse 24. Chapter 22, Exodus, verse number 24. Um, in Kesef Talve et Ami, if you lend money to my people, et he'oni imach, amongst the poor, remember, lending money is for poor people. Don't act towards them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. When Neshech is, when Shoch is the bite, don't take a bite out of them. Don't take more. That's the first rule, rule number 24. If you take your neighbor's garment in pledge, right? You must return it. Why? Next verse. How could he sleep? If you take this away, he needs to sleep. Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed. For I am compassionate, says God. So uh, you have over here, um, once again, the crying out. And in the context of a loan, it starts with so you shouldn't take interest. And if you have a garment in pledge, you have to return it. Because otherwise, the person may have, what's it, what, what will this person sleep in? The presumption is one does not have a whole wardrobe, especially a poor person. If the person cries out, I will listen because I am compassionate. That's one interesting verse, and it reminds us very much of the verse in Sefer Devarim, 
But there actually is another verse. Let's see if I can find this other verse very quickly. Where is this other verse? Give me a moment. Where is this verse? About the care? In this context, I'm, I'm not finding it now. Here it is, I got it. Uh, nine. The previous verses start with verse number 20. Verse number 20, just back up a bit. So these verses, what we just read about was alone. In verse number 20 is, of oh, 20 talks about not oppressing the stranger. I mentioned that, and then you have 21. Do not ill-treat any widow or orphan. It's a law book, right? Reading a law book should be very cut and dry. If you do mistreat them, if you do inui, if you abuse them, mistreat them, I will hear their cry. Notice the double. They're going to cry out to me. And in the next verse, in verse 23, I'm going to get angry, says God. I will put my sword to you. Your wives will be widows and your children will be orphans. And what strikes us over here, obviously, is that suddenly we don't have a kind of dispassionate, objective lawgiver, but we have a very, very angry God who says, I'm going to hear it. You're going to cry out to me. I'm going to get angry and I'm going to kill you. And you, your wives will be widows and, and your children will be orphans. This jumps out, jumps off the page. And the word that appears three times, of course, in verse 21 and twice in 22 is the word Inui. So what jumps out in this code are three words. First, Evet, which is the largest section, obviously. And then we have the Ger, the stranger. Do not twice mention, don't oppress the stranger. Twice is mentioned. And then we have Inui. And Inui incurs God's wrath and God's, uh, you know, vindictive kind of punishment. You, you'll see what it feels like, or, your, or your, your survivors will see what it feels like. Gewut, Avdut, and Inui, which of course is the covenantal triad. So you have the covenantal triad, and what you have over here twice, right, is and in the context of loans you have it, because the next verse talks about when Kesef Tavayatami, what you have over here, in verse 24, what you have is precisely parallel to what you have in the book of Devarim when it comes to Shemitah. If you, once again, lending the money. Don't, you have to get better, do not abstain from lending money to the poor because the person will cry out, So I was thinking just yesterday how this parallel to the Book of the Covenant reinforces this notion that Shemitah is a covenantal mitzvah. And once again, it's not easy to observe this because you could in fact lose the money. However, do it anyway, because this is what it means to be covenantal. And you have to be willing to pay, take the, you know, the risk, one might say, then lending the money, you will lose your money because the money is being given to a poor person. Clearly, it says it here, and it's explicit in the book of Shemot as well. The poor person who lives with you, and we're not permitted to take advantage of that, take interest, etc. So this reinforces the core idea of these sessions, which is that Shemitah is a covenantal mitzvah. So let me stop here at this point and take any comments or questions you might have uh, about Shemitah, and then we'll move on to one last uh, thought about the Shemitah. Anybody has comments or questions? Now is the time. Hey, isn't uh, isn't Lial also a kind of a Vodazara? Uh, I, I, I could be wrong about it, but I have this this uh, uh, memory. So in the Pasuk in Dvarim, where it says, uh, Hishamer lecha pen davar. 
im livavecha bliyal. So there's this concept that, and it's the same thing when you were talking about in in Shmot zoveach lelakim yecharam bilti lashem levado. There's this contrast of avodah zara to 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 uh, serving God. Uh, avodah zara is a form of of a it it it's my money it's uh, it's my it's all mine um you know right but you make a very interesting point i would say two things first of all the point is well taken because in the chumash in the barim it says because it makes right. it very clearly that shmita is, is god's sabbatical year and yeah you're saying i think more than that if i understand it which is you're drawing a link between the shmita in Devarim, which talks about money, one's resources, and the Shemitah of Vayikra, which talks about the land. There, the Torah is explicit. The land is mine. The Torah says it explicitly in chapter 25, that it's my land. Well, actually, it's a good segue into the next uh, little piece, but yeah, that's an interesting point, that Buliyah, I'm not sure it always is idolatrous, but it often is. So having this kind of thought, this, this bad thought, it's an affront not just to your fellow poor person, Helani Imach, who, who lives with you as part of the community, but it's an affront to God, because what you're suggesting is that it's yours. And the, what God is saying essentially is, it's all mine, basically. What, what you have, you should see as my allowing you to, to have it, or maybe even my, 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 my in some way, um, part of the process of, of, of obtaining it. But and therefore, yeah, and therefore, since it's not yours to begin with, you should not be unwilling to share it and to run the risk of potentially losing your losing the money. Of course, we all know that this is an important point that the um, that the oral tradition, the Mishnah, the Gemara, was very, very aware of the fact that Shemitah is in fact difficult to observe. That's clear. And um, it's clear in terms, there are many sources for this. It's clear from the Mishnah in Shvit. It's clear from several Gemarot. And it's most clear, actually, when it comes to, to remission of debts. We famously have the Prusbo in the, found in the Mishnah in Shvit in the last chapter and the Gemara in Gitin. Hillel, you know, set up this Prusbo in which a, a creditor can go to the court and it's not exactly clear how it works, either hand over the debt to the court or proclaim before the court that, you know, I'm, I'm gonna collect my, my debt, uh, even after Shvit, even after Shemitah, as perhaps a, a uh, messenger of the court, you know, a, 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 an agent of the court. Uh, so it's clear that people were not observing the Shemitah year and it was, problematic both for the rich and for the poor for the rich because the rich is violating something and for the poor because they can't get a loan so he'll determine to in the spirit of the Torah one might say which is concerned that the poor people get loans because they can't survive otherwise so he'll created this principle idea which essentially is able to you know circumvent one might say or to to go around the uh, the uh, the the, uh, cancel, the the remission of debts for the benefit of the poor and the rich. This way, the poor can get a loan, and um, so that's a very interesting topic in general um, about this remission of debts. And I would say that not only did they he'll get around it, but in the rabbinic tradition, they interpreted or maybe reinterpreted the verses in. Um, in Devarim, which talk about what's called Shemitah's Ksafim, the remission of, of Shemitah of, 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 of money, right? And they under, they understood that the, the section in Devarim is not really claiming that the debt is canceled. They claim something else. The debt is not canceled, but Shemitah forbids me to collect the debt, which is very different. That's the, that's, that is the, a rabbinic understanding of, of the verses in Devarim. So, but the reinterpretation, one could argue, is a function of the fact that the, they understood that, in fact, the warning of the Torah 
is very real. And Hillisaw was actually taking place. People were refusing to lend money. So remember, there's, there's no benefit to lending. There's no financial benefit. There may be a moral benefit, but there's no financial benefit because there's no interest. Our economy is based on interest. Interest is the most significant piece of our economy. Everything's based on interest. High interest rates, low interest rates, the stock market. When interest rates are low, stock market goes up because there's no place to put your money. You can't get interest. And you're paying out interest all the time on top of inflation, of course, but you're paying it out. So therefore, maybe you put your money into stocks. That's why the market, when interest rates are low, the stock market typically, typically goes up. Everything's based on interest, but you're talking about an interest-free economy. I mean, you can loan money to non-Jews, which is, you know, but the idea of not taking interest, and I made this point earlier, interest, it's called Neshech and all that, but the fact of the matter is that we do take a kind of interest when it comes to business arrangements, right? I mean, you rent a house, you're paying, you're paying for the use of the house. So why shouldn't you pay for use of the money? They give you money, I'm allowing you to use the money. So, you know, logically, what's wrong with taking interest? It's the same as taking rent. It's the same as taking any time. I permit you to use what's mine for a fee. That's perfectly reasonable. It's not taking interest that's striking because it's kind of charity, basically, what it comes down to. So you don't take interest, it's a charitable act. Okay, but there's no financial upside for me. So... My point is to reinforce this point that, and there are many Gemaras as well, where people are not observing Shemitah because it's too difficult. And the question is, what do you do about that? And Hill decided that to serve the, the spirit of the Torah, I would say, which is concerned that poor people can survive, can live, he, he tiptoed around the, the details of the law. Uh, and perhaps, perhaps our Chazal reinterpreted the Shemitah Kasafi. But uh, your point is well taken that it's in a front, not just to social, you know, society as it is, as it were, but it's in a front to God because Karash Shemitah Okay. So this is in terms of the, I, I think, very striking parallel between the description of what could happen in, in chapter 15 of Devarim and the person will cry out to God. And we have that twice in the Book of the Covenant. The widow, the orphan, will cry out. And I will hear, says God, I'm, I'm merciful, and I will hear, and I will punish you. And in terms of, uh, again, taking the other person's pledge or, or, or what's after mistreating the, the, the borrower, it's also will cry out and we pay a price for that. So this is what it means to be covenantal. If not, it doesn't make your life easier, as it were. It may make it more meaningful, in a sense. And I think that's what it's about. Connects you to God, but it's not simple. It's not easy. So is, Hashem crying, is Hashem crying out? Is that what you're saying? No, the Hashem people? is responding, I'm saying. To the cry. And you, and Hashem is going to hear the cry. Mm-hmm. And the, the language actually, and it's what's striking, it's in the book of laws. It's in a rule book. And you have it, not just God will hear, but you have the double, you know, Shamoa Eshma. Shamoa Eshma. The double language is to reinforce. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's all doubles. And that's what makes it very striking that in a rule book, you don't expect to see this. That suddenly God gets, loses God's temper, one might say, and it's going to act that way. Okay, so that was the... I wanted to... We still have some time, and I did want to get to another point about Shemitah. And this actually... Um, it's very interesting that the Torah speaks in Shemitah, as we saw in chapter 25, of not working the land. You don't work the land during the sabbatical year. Okay, that's true. But what's interesting is that in the Gemara, the Mishnah, and the Talmud, there is an additional rule of Shemitah, which is very striking. And that is, you're forbidden to work the land. But what about the crops of the Shemitah year that you are forbidden to, to that you are permitted to take? Because things do grow in and of themselves. Uh, you didn't plant during the seventh year, but stuff does grow. What about the fruit that is permitted to eat during the Shemitah year? So what is the rule of that fruit? So the Mishnah, the Gemara, speak about what's called Kedushat Shemitah, that the things that grow during the seventh year 
have a certain sanctity. What does it mean they have a certain sanctity? Well, it means a couple of things. It means you can't just discard it. And it means that, interestingly enough, that you have to use the produce for that which it is used for. So like food, for example, you, you can eat that food. If you didn't plant it, you can eat it. Uh, but um, it has a certain kedusha. It means you can eat it, but you can't use it for other purposes. Whatever its, whatever its primary use is, it has to be used for that. And that's called kedusha shvit. And not only that, but if you sold it, you're not permitted to do business with the fruit. But if you did give it to someone else or whatever, in exchange, you say you sold it for money. You're not a business person, but you sell this in the, some items, or you exchange it for other fruit, let's say. The fruit that you exchange it for also has the same kedusha. You can't just throw it out. So there are all kinds of rules about Shemitah, about the produce, that the produce is what's called has kedusha, has a certain sanctity. It only can be used for certain purposes and not others. Now, the fact of the matter is that the Torah never called Shemitah, never said the Shemitah is Kodesh. That term does not appear in the Chumash. So the question is, where does that come from? Where is this rabbinic concept that the produce of the Shemitah has all kinds of restrictions? Kedusha always comes with restrictions. But where's that coming from? Where did they read it? And I, I believe they had two sources for this, two very very legitimate sources for their position that the produce of the Shemitah is Kodesh. One is, of course, the fact that the Torah compares it to, uh, to, uh, to a Shabbat, Shabbos. Shabbos is Kodesh. In fact, when you first read in the Chumash, in the first very beginning of the Torah, Shabbos is a Yom Kadosh. And since Shemitah is Shabbos of the land, a sabbatical year, and it comes by in and of itself. Shabbos is every seventh day, Shemitah is every seventh year. We don't have to do anything to create the Shemitah. It comes in and of itself. So one source of the Kedusha of Shemitah could be the fact, simply, that it's called Shabbos. That's one possibility. And there's a second possibility, which does not contradict the first. It is Shabbos. But there's something else about Shemitah in chapter 25 of Ayikra. This is a whole topic in and of itself, I'll just mention it. And that is that Shemitah is every seven years, but the Torah says that we should count out seven Shemitahs, seven times seven. And in the 50th year, the year following the seven of the seven, the Torah says this year is very special. It's, a, it's called Yovel. If you look at chapter 25, it talks about Yovel. Let's, let's see, chapter 20, it begins, in verse number eight, chapter 25, verse eight, the Torah says, count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven. So you have 49. And then in verse number nine, in the seventh month, you sound the shofar. Very strikingly, on Yom Kippur. You shall sound the shofar throughout the land. And the next verse is, You shall sanctify the 50th year. And it says, Proclaim liberty throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It's on the Liberty Bell. It is the Yovel year, the Jubilee, the Yovel. So during the Jubilee year, the Yovel, each of you shall return to his holding and to the family. So we'll get to that in a moment. And then the next verse, Yovel, it is the Yovel year, the 50th year. Do not plan, do not sow. Exactly the parallels what we find in Shemitah, and that's verse number 11. And in verse number 12, in the next verse, Ki Yovel, Kodesh Tiyelochem. It is the Yovel, it is holy for you. So we notice that the word Kodesh appears twice in conjunction with the Yovel. First of all, we are commanded to sanctify the year, the Kiddash Tem. 
Shnat HaChamishim Shana, and the year itself is called Kodesh in verse number 12, it is holy to you. So perhaps the rabbinic understanding of the Shemitah is a kind of mini Yovel. Now the Yovel has other rules that don't apply during the Shemitah. Not working the field applies to both. And the Yovel has the additional rules of returning everyone to their holdings, which has two different significances. One is, as the Torah will spell out in the rest of chapter 25, that in the Jubilee year, the slaves go free. Slaves are free. And secondly, and very strikingly, the land goes back to the original owner. The land being presumably the land that you got when you entered the land, the land was divided up. That's called Achuzato. So in the Jubilee year, let's say you sold your land. Um, you get the land back, which is a remarkable rule if you think about it. It's revolutionary. Every 50 years, everything returns to the way it was. And the Torah then continues to say, the, what are the repercussions? What, what, what does this entail? So for example, the first rule is that when you sell a piece of land, you're not actually selling the land because the land's going to come back. What you're actually doing is renting the land. And therefore, you have to adjust the price accordingly. So I'm not selling you this thing in perpetuity forever. You can sell the land forever. You're forbidden to sell the land forever. So essentially, you are just renting it. And therefore, we have the rule of overcharging. You're not permitted to overcharge. But the point is, in any event, that leaving Yovo for a second, Yovo is Kodesh. Yovo is you sanctify the Yovel and the and it's Kodesh. The Yovel itself is Kodesh. It says, and you can't not permit it to work the fields. So perhaps our tradition understood borrows the concept from the Yovel. If Yovel is Kodesh, because you can't work the fields, yes, there are other rules during the Jubilee year that don't apply during Shemitah. But Shemitah can be seen as, you know, one might say leading up to Yovel or partaking in, in a sense, part of the idea of the Yovel this revolutionary idea, revolutionary rule, and that therefore the Shemitah has also a sense of Kedusha. So that which grows during the Shemitah year is Kodesh. And you, Kodesh means you, you treat it in a very special way. You have to use it for what its purpose is. You can't use it for different purposes. Um, it's an interesting concept in general to think about, about Kedusha in that sense, that it means approaching something with a kind of reverence and not trying to use it instrumentally for my own purposes, but rather doing what it's, what it's used for. Treating this object in a way that is recognizing its, its, its inherent dignity, its inherent sanctity. You know, I would suspect that if one constructed a, a kind of shulchan of human behavior, not how we deal with food, but how we deal with the other person in this way, recognizing the person as, as, as having kind of sanctity. And I believe we would think differently perhaps about our social interactions, that, that, that using people instrumentally, et cetera, et cetera. But in any event, uh, the Shemitah year is understood by the tradition and as being, a, being holy, as being Kodesh. And this, of course, also fits in very well with the Shabbat. Um, we didn't have really time to get into the Yovel, which is in itself an amazing halacha. If you think about it, it's this idea that, as Torah says, the land is mine, says God, and you are strangers and sojourners with me. Um, and what the implications are is very striking. Some of the implications are about overcharging. And let me end with one thought. There's so much more to say here. But there is a verse in chapter 25 which speaks of, um, speaks of the land, uh, and that's verse number, verse number 24. Chapter 25, verse 24, um, that's after the section where people will say, can we actually keep this mitzvah? It's too difficult. Um, and the Torah says, uh, yes, it's difficult, but you can do it and have faith. Verse 23 said, you can't, may not sell the land forever. But the land is mine. 
you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in verse number 24, throughout the land, you must provide for the redemption of the land. And I think it's actually very striking that the term the Torah uses is ge'ula. Ge'ula is to redeem or to save, right? God is ga'al Yisrael, God is the go'el. And what's interesting is that this section, the Torah said the land must be redeemed, bring redemption to the land. And the very next section, which you don't have time to get into now, we have to finish, but talks about what about if someone was forced to sell himself as a, as a slave, became poor. And poor people often ended up as slaves because they sell themselves as a slave, not that the courts sold them. Your kinsman is in straits, is poor, and sold his land. So forced to sell his land or himself. The first section is the land. Then the Torah says, Then there's the obligation on the relatives to be a goel, to be a redeemer. So the one who, who, who comes in and, and brings the land back to the poor person who had to sell the land, was pressed, um, is called the goel. It's called the goel. And I would just conclude this with the following observation. And in chapter 26, which talks about the covenant, the blessing and the curse. So if you fail to, if you fail to keep the mitzvot, there are all kinds of dire punishments. And amongst them is the very interesting expression which appears several times. Ga'al to redeem is gimel alaf ramen. Ga'al with an ayin, ga'al is to, is, to, is to abhor or to loathe. And what's striking is at the end of that long section, which talks about exile and the land keeps its Sabbath years, the end of it talks about returning. Even though they've been in, in the foreign lands, I have not totally rejected them. And I will bring them back. So in the, in the covenantal formula of chapter 26, God bringing us back is parallel to what you have over here about the one who restores the field to the poor person, one who gets the poor person out of slavery. That person is called the Goel. In the Tochacha, actually, which relates directly to chapter 25, God is the Goel. God promises to be goel with an aleph at the end. If we misbehave for a while, God is a goel with an ayin. So God is, the, is seen as the, as the redeemer. It's another way in which the, 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 the blessing and the curse of chapter 26 is so deeply connected to chapter 25. And the idea of the Shemitah and the Jubilee year, basically, it's a different way to see the world and it's a different way. It's not really ours. It's God's land. We are strangers and sojourners. And this way of seeing the world, the Shemitah is a different way to see the world. And suddenly at the center of the chapter 25 is that one word, Goel. It's a, obligatory on everyone to see oneself as potentially a, 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 a redeemer. And after all, the covenant of chapter 26, which is based on the Ten Commandments, based on the experience of Sinai. It's a reformulation of the Sinaitic commandment. And as the Torah says, I brought you on eagle's wings and brought you to Sinai. God was the goel, it's one of the bywords of Yitziat Mitzrayim. So one of the lessons we should take from Egypt, clearly, is to imitate God in that sense. God redeemed us, and it's our obligation to see ourselves as potential redeemers of the other. And that's how the Torah ends. Someday God will, in fact, bring us back if we repent, if we pay our dues, etc., etc. So that's, uh, I think, ending on this upnote here about Shemitah and to reinforce the centrality of the Shemitah commandment as representing all the mitzvot and the obligation of that it, that it imposes upon us in a different way of seeing the world, actually, both the Shemitah and especially the Yovel, which is very striking. Anyway, thank you all for participating. And um, yeah, so looking forward to more studying, more learning together with you. And uh, okay, let's see what the, hopefully many other classes, and thank you. Thank you, thank you. so very much. Thank Excellent. You. Thank you as always, Rabbi Silver, for 
a fantastic class and to everyone here for participating in Drisha's learning community on Zoom, on Facebook Live, and on Drisha Live. It's wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. We do have a couple more classes finishing up this week, and you're always welcome to jump in for the last session. You know that you can check out the audio library to catch up if, if you uh, are the type that need to come in already, already knowing uh, what's been going on. So tomorrow night and Thursday afternoon. But this time next week, uh, we will, God willing, be having a class on Zoom, different room, but same time, with uh, Dr. A.J. Perkowitz called uh, Sefer Tehillim and the story of how and why Tefillah grows. You are welcome to check out the link in the chat and please join us if you're able. Please be well and we hope to see you soon.